Welcome those of you who are joining us uh, right now uh, from an offsite campus on the internet at home, uh, wherever you happen to be. Uh, I'm glad to be here. Um, I have been watching uh, online mo- mostly the last couple of weeks, and uh, wow, what amazing messages the last couple of weeks! And uh, so, I'm hoping this isn't a downer uh, with me. Uh, so I'm a little nervous about that. So I need audience participation and. Let me know what you think, all right? <laughs> well, listen, uh, we're in a series, and the series is, what does God say about blank? And you sent in questions. And my assignment today is, what, what, did, what does God say about life? And here's what I'd like to do as we begin. Um, I'm going to list some categories, and I want you to think about kind of where you sit. Where, where are you? And uh, just do a mental note of, okay, that's, that's kind of where where I am. So uh, if we were going to look at the congregation here uh, and just kind of kind of uh, segment it or give labels, I don't like labels, but I'm going to give you some labels today. Uh, some of us, uh, there's a small slice that are pro-life activists. That's what you would call yourself. You participate in pro-life marches. You may have picketed an abortion clinic. You support a crisis pregnancy center. And it definitely impacts how you vote, pro-life activists. Some of us would say, well, I'm not an activist, but I would be a pro-life supporter. In other words, don't really march or picket, but I believe that life begins in the womb. God creates uh, babies, and uh, it definitely impacts the way that I vote. Another group of people, slice, would be uh, what I call pro-life but, pro-life but, And uh, you would say, you know, I believe that life begins in the womb. I'm pro-life in that sense. But I believe that not enough value is being placed on life beyond the womb by those who describe themselves as pro-life. I've got several friends that would tell me that's kind of where I land in the whole issue. And then there would be pro-choice supporters. And you may believe that life begins in the womb, but you're not sure when. You know, is it at conception? Is it uh, when there's a heartbeat? Is it at what's called viability, when that child could live outside the womb? Uh, And you believe that it is a woman's right to choose whether or not to terminate a pregnancy, and you're certainly uncomfortable with an older white guy telling you what to do with your body, okay? And uh, I get it, I get it. And then there are some who would be pro-choice activists, Uh, You definitely believe it's a woman's right to choose. You're involved financially with political groups that advance the cause. You may have marched last night or yesterday here in Charleston in a a pro-choice rally, and you're a pro-choice activist, and it definitely impacts how you vote. And then there's another group of people here, and that's those of you who have had an abortion. Maybe you're a female that uh, you had an abortion. Maybe you're a male that that you were involved in at one point in your life 
And you're hoping that I won't pick the scab on wounds that go deep into your soul. And you, frankly, are the ones that I'm most concerned with today. Now, this this topic is going to get a lot of airplay in the next few weeks and months. Why? Well, there's laws that are changing. States like South Carolina, Mississippi, and Texas are creating new laws that restrict abortion and protect the life of the unborn. I want to talk to you about that in just a minute. This is kind of a teaching point. Um, I'm not a lawyer. Um, I know lawyers. I like lawyers, and I read John Grisham. How does that qualify me? All right? So, So the Texas law, which is pretty controversial right now, I don't think, this is just my personal opinion. I'm going off, this isn't God, this is Greg. I don't think it's a good law. I, I don't think it'll last or stand. I don't particularly think it does what it needs to do. Now, here's why I say that. Because as we talk about this topic or any other topic for that matter, you don't have to agree with every strategy in order to be pro-life, okay? I, I'll, I'll come out. I'm pro-life, all right? I think most of you knew that. You don't have to agree with every strategy. Like, I'm pro-Denver Broncos, all right? They're going to play today, and I'm hoping that they just destroy uh, Baltimore. I just That's just kind of how it is. But I am not pro-every strategy that the Denver Broncos do. Does that make sense? Because we, we have this feeling, especially in our culture today, either you're in or you're out. Either you believe with me or you believe against me. And I don't believe that. I believe that on many issues, that whether it's how we take care of the poor. I believe we have a responsibility to take care of the, of the poor. You don't have to agree with every strategy that's along that line or immigration or anything else. Here's something I think I'm learning as a long-term pastor here. You need to understand, before I started Seacoast, um, I'd spent about 15 minutes at Northwood Assembly. Actually, it's about a year. And that's the only time I'd spent in a large church. Never been in a mega church. Always been in small churches. And then this church began to grow, okay? Began to grow. And uh, I know what to do. I mean, I, I know how to preach the word. I know how to relate to people. But I'm not sure that I knew how to, you know, manage a, a growing large uh, church and some of the things that you have to do on that. And so I, uh, I uh, got some business guys around me to help me. Now, how many of you know that when you make a decision, that oftentimes there are unintended consequences? You ever experienced that? You think you made the right choice, but there are un- unintended consequences of that choice. Well, uh, one guy taught me one time, he said, if you'll ask the question, and then what? It will help. Okay, so we make this change, and then what happens? Okay, we think through that. And they said, ask it seven layers deep. Now, that's strong. But if you'll go that far with it, you will probably have a good idea of where the unintended consequences are. So I'm just saying that to say, uh, we don't have to agree on everything, you know. I that that's for sure. But even if you um, even if you kind of fall in one category, you don't have to agree with every strategy that that category has. Now, the Supreme Court is going to take a fresh look at Roe v. Wade, which is going to make this topic uh, top profile uh, very 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 soon. Roe v. Wade 
was a decision made by the Supreme Court in January 1973 that reshaped American politics. And if it's repealed, as some think it will be, it will again reshape American politics. I'd urge the politicians among us, think about that. Uh, what then? You know, so what happens then? What happens then? What happens then? Because it's going to reshape the politics uh, that, as we know it. Now, let, let me give you my journey just a little bit. Some of you uh, weren't alive in 1973. That makes me feel really, really old. Uh, but I was. In 1973, I was a senior in high school. I graduated in 1974. And then I went to college at a Bible college in 1974. And um, uh, since the, the, the whole Roe versus Wade thing was big at that time, uh, one of our college professors uh, had us write a paper in Bible school on, you know, why we don't agree with Roe v. Wade. Well, I wrote a paper on pro-choice. It wasn't called pro-choice at the time, but why I thought it was a good idea, which may be one of the reasons I got kicked out of a Bible school within <laughs> just a few months, okay? I'm just being real. You know, I'm 19 years old. I knew everything, and uh, I, I laid it out and all of that. Now, over time, my, uh, as I studied the issue, uh, my decisions or kind of allegiance changed on that, on that whole thing. Uh, there came a point where I actually was a, a pro-life activist. I mean, I marched in uh, rallies and I probably picketed an abortion clinic or two and may have come close to getting arrested. I didn't blow anything up, okay? But in the 1990s, uh, when um, this issue began to be weaponized by political parties for uh, the purpose of power, I kind of opted out and said, I know what I believe, but I'm not going to be a poster child for, you know, where that is. And you can agree with that or not agree with that. I'm just being real with you. I'm just telling you, I'm not going to lend my God-given influence. Uh, I'm going to be very careful about lending God-given influence. I know that there needs to be political solutions. I understand that. But this is, this is uh, so that you know kind of where, where I come from. Now, here's the good news. The abortion rate is now lower than it was when Roe was decided. There are less abortions today than there were when it was illegal, basically, in America. And the abortion rate has decreased during various uh, presidencies and administrations. So what's going on? And we can talk a long time about that. I don't want to. I want to get into what the Bible has to say about all of this. But a recent... Uh, Notre Dame study, in fact, I think it was two years ago, Dr. Tricia Bruce um, studied people, didn't let them know that the study was about, you know, pro-life, pro-choice or whatever. And what she found is there was a minority, a small slice that supported just a flat abortion ban. Doesn't matter what the circumstances are, it should be, it should be banned. Uh, there was a small slice on the other end that supported uh, its legality in all circumstances, didn't matter, but that a majority were somewhere in the middle, which is probably pretty true about a lot of issues, okay? And here's what she concluded. She said, none of the Americans that we interviewed talked about abortion as a desirable good. Views range in terms of abortion's preferred availability, justification, or need, but Americans do not uphold abortion as a happy event or something that they want more of. From uh, restrictive to ambivalent to permissive, we instead heard about the desire to prevent, reduce, and eliminate potentially difficult 
or unexpected circumstances that predicate abortion decisions. Stories from those who have had abortions are likewise harrowing, even when the person telling it retains a commitment to abortion's availability. And so basically what it says is none of us like it. None of us like it. We have differences in in how you deal with it, but none of us like it. So what makes this issue so complicated and volatile are the real life stories. It's one thing to have, you know, something on paper and a second, but what about real people? What about a 15-year-old girl who is raped by her drunken uncle or her neighbor? That represents 2% of the abortions uh, in America. But what about it? What about a married couple so excited to welcome their first child into the world and the child they dreamed of having for years only to learn that the baby has a serious birth defect and will not likely survive? What do they do? Or what about the single mother of three young kids who can barely make ends meet as she juggles caring for her children while working a full-time job and she's pregnant and she doesn't know how to handle it? Here's what I want to say. I want to be sensitive to each one of those issues. But the bottom line is, it's not as important what I think or what you think as what God thinks. Okay? There is truth on issues. Okay. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to give you, uh, does, does the Bible say anything about this issue? Does God give uh, uh, practical wisdom on this issue? So I want to give you some things to think about when you're thinking about life. And I want to give you, guess how many? Three, okay? Let me give you three things to think about when you're thinking about this issue, when you watch the news, look at Facebook over the next few months, weeks and months, when it becomes a big issue. Number one, God loves everybody. (laughs) That's a real surprise to hear from us. That's a foundation of who we are. It's a part of our core values. God loves everybody. Uh, Let's read a scripture on that. Psalm 145, verse 9. The Lord is good to most people. Yeah, that's the revised substandard perversion is what that is. What does it say? All, all of those categories, all. God is good to all people. He has compassion on what? On all that he has made. God loves pro-life activists. God loves pro-life supporters. God loves people who are pro-life, but, you know, let's get it past the womb. God loves pro-choice supporters. God loves pro-choice activists. God loves those who have had an abortion. God even loves those who have participated in abortions for a profit. God loves everybody. Now, just because God loves us doesn't mean that he approves of everything that we do. Does anybody have a testimony on that? If you're a parent, you understand that. Yes, son, I love you, but you're still going to pay the consequences for what you're doing right now. And God loves everybody. But you know what? The Bible is full of instances where God says that he he resists proud people. Okay? He resists the the proud. Does he love them? Yes. But he understands that what they're doing is not right. Okay? And listen, in the culture that we're in, you've got your truth and I've got my truth. You know? Well, that's not 
there is a truth. And your truth needs to be connected to the foundational truth of the universe or else your truth will flow back and forth and won't be a stable foundation. And so, and so God resists the proud. If you've heard me preach one message or you've heard me preach a hundred, I've, I've said this several times. I do not want God on the other team. Okay. I don't want God resisting me. How many of you don't want the God of the universe resisting you? Okay. So, so some things while God loves us, he, he disciplines us and not everything is good even though um, we, we might think it, it does. God frustrates the purposes of evildoers. You know, sometimes we feel like because of the microwave culture that we're in and we want a conclusion to every television show by 60 minutes, that all the issues are going to be wrapped up in a short amount of time. And just because God hasn't dealt with some evildoers, maybe in your life or whatever, doesn't mean that he won't. God deals in seconds, minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, decades, and generations, okay? And God uh, deals with evildoers. Now, Romans 2 and verse 4 says, don't you see how wonderfully and kind and tolerant and patient God is with you? This is how God deals with people. Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? You know, when somebody sins against me, somebody betrays me, or at least I feel like it's a betrayal, I know that I, I can't be bitter. And so I, I love the scripture where Peter says, I think it's in 1 Peter 2 or 2 Peter 2. He says uh, uh, that his pattern was Jesus, who while he was still on the cross, he didn't revile the people that did it, but he said he trusted himself to him who judges justly. So I'm learning that even if I'm betrayed in an issue or somebody sins against me, that I cannot afford a root of bitterness. And so I'm going to trust myself to God who judges justly, but I do want God to take a piece of flesh for me if he would. Is there anybody else here that it feels that way? And it just irritates me when in God's kindness and goodness, he brings somebody to repentance because I want him to bash them. Okay. Cause that's how I would do it. But we, we learn that God loves everybody. So Everybody that you run into today is loved by God and is somewhere in the process of his redemption. And you need to understand that, okay? Here's the second thing, is that God himself chooses when life begins. God chooses when life begins. Uh, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, and I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. You know, this is such an amazing scripture. I think about it. I think about the psalmist when he says, I'm, I know full well I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I'm wondering if he's standing in a mirror. God, you did it that time. Wow. Most of us don't feel that way, you know, but maybe he did. I don't think so. I think he maybe he looks at the eye the human eye, and he says, there's not an explanation for that. I mean, it's incredible how you have crafted. And he said, when did you do it? You did it in the womb. He said, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Just an amazing scripture. Apparently, God was and is very active in pregnancy. 
Uh, one study uh, showed that in the womb, a child receives a unique DNA co co uh, coding. Uh, immediately, a unique DNA coding. A child that bar is barely perceptible by human eye contains more information in that DNA coding than 50 sets of the physical 33-volume set of Encyclopedia Britannica. I must explain that so you will understand. Some of you have no idea what Encyclopedia Britannica 33 set is. Think Wikipedia on paper, okay? How many of you, before the internet, you, you or your family or somebody had a set of Britannica encyclopedias? Yeah, you had them. Here's the problem. They were wonderful for doing reports or something, but here's the problem, is the minute they come out, they're obsolete because there's new stuff. <clears throat> here's the point. The full Encyclopedia Britannica is 33 volumes. And what, what this study is saying is that you take 33 times 50, and that's how much DNA is encoded in a child. It's just a, no wonder, no wonder uh, the scripture says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, uh, times have changed in a lot of ways on how, uh, how, how we give birth to kids. He said, well, it's been basically the same way forever. Yeah, but kind of how we experience it. When I was born, uh, they didn't let daddies into the operating room, into the birthing room, we call it now, okay? Uh, in that situation, it was mom and maybe a few nurses and a doctor, and, and the dad set out in the foyer, right? And maybe with a group of guys or normally by themselves because that's how men roll. And uh, he's out there, and the doctor comes out and says, where's dad? Well, he's having a cigarette. Get him in here. Get him in. And then the doctor says, you are now the proud father of what? A new son, if it was me. Okay, that's kind of, kind of how it worked. Now, when I had children, my wife and I, it was a little different. Because then they were saying, might be good for dads to be in the room uh, with, with mom. And so you had to go through a series of uh, training before you could go in. We had several weeks of, it's called Lamaze training. Anybody ever do that? And I remember I went the first week. And we had to sit on the floor, cross-legged, in Colorado, Fort Collins, Colorado, and uh, learn how to breathe. Mm, yeah. So when that was over, I thought, I ain't coming to this anymore. I'm done. Okay. But you had to go to at least two, and it came down to the last one. And the last one was just a whole bunch of film on babies being born. Okay. So I came. I remember driving out of that uh, clinic out in the main traffic and looking over at Debbie as if it was yesterday and saying, you know, I'm not sure that I can do this. <laughs> and I remember her looking at me saying, I'm not sure I can do this either, but <laughs> I don't have a choice and neither do you. <laughs> and then when Joshua was born, our second, our second child, it was a little difficult. He has a, a, a pretty good sized head in. Uh, <clears throat> It's just kept getting bigger, especially, yeah. But anyway, so, so we're about halfway through, and, and I'm not feeling so well. And so I, go, I excuse myself and slip out to a bathroom. And Debbie looks around, doesn't see me, and she says to the nurse, uh, where's Greg? And uh, 
The nurse said, well, Greg's not feeling so well. And she said, well, I'm not feeling so well myself. Somebody go get him and get him back in here. Okay. Now let's fast forward to my grandkids. Man, technology has changed to such a degree that there is a crisis pregnancy center here in town that allows us to do this graciously. But when there's going to be a heartbeat or uh, the, 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 you can tell the sex of the child, the Surratts all go together. I can remember my, my, one of my daughters was on the front row in the last service. She was doing this. About 15 of us crammed into this room. She's laying up on a table. <clears throat> a nurse is kind of running a thing around. There's blips on the screen, and we start cheering when we hear heartbeats, you know, and we see what sex the child is. Let's, uh, times have changed. But you know, the beating heart of an unborn child isn't valuable because its parents and grandparents love it and want to bring it into this world. It has independent value. It is the heart of a small person, fearfully and wonderfully made and created in the image of God. Now, here's what I believe. I believe that a just nation protects that life. Life just like any other life. I also believe a just nation <clears throat> prioritizes the protection of the weak and vulnerable in its midst, not just babies. A just nation addresses economic realities that makes it harder for some families to survive. If economic insecurity is the reason why women choose abortion, in some cases it is, then easing that insecurity can be concretely and completely pro-life. I'm not, yeah, I'm not suggesting that we all agree on all of these issues. Did I say earlier that uh, there, there's room for, there's room for uh, not agreeing with every strategy, but if we aren't thinking about the issues, then we're missing, I think, God's heart for, uh, for his people. A just people, I believe, also supports crisis pregnancy centers financially to make it easier for people in crisis pregnancy situations. And I think they're going to put something on the, on the screen that um, is a way that you can get involved and, and help uh, financially in that if you, if you so choose. Pro-life should not just be a political slogan. It should be a way of life for all of us. All lives are created by God and every life matters to him. Would you agree with that? So what about those difficult situations that we alluded to earlier? Um, I know, uh, I, having been pastor here for 30-some years, I have walked through and know several parents of children with Down syndrome, okay, with Down syndrome. According to one major survey, among those surveyed, nearly 99% of people with Down syndrome indicated that they were happy with their lives. 97% liked who they are and 96% liked how they look. I want you to think about that. If we were to give that survey right now, you all would not be pegging the edge like that. I will guarantee you. Yet high 90s are satisfied with the life that they have. 96% um, liked uh, or 99% uh, with Down syndrome, expressed a love for their families, and 97% like their brothers and sisters. Wow, that's pretty amazing. 
Also, according to a major survey published in 2011 by the American Journal of Medical Genetics, the vast majority of parents said that they have a more positive outlook on life because they're of their child with Down syndrome. And nearly 90% of siblings indicated that they feel like they are better people because of their brother or sister with a developmental disability. You know what was interesting is uh, why I talk about this is because, let me, uh, I was in the foyer, and there's a, there's a little guy in our church that is uh, developmentally impaired, and he said, I really like the sermon today, because he said, I don't have Down syndrome, but I'm real close. I'm developmentally impaired, and he said, you know what? I like the life I have. I nearly cried. I really did. I thought, God bless you, and God loves you, and I wish I had your outlook on life sometimes. Well, what about severely disabled children? As for children with severe health issues, the obvious question is, where do we draw the line? If it's wrong to bring a child into the world who will only suffer pain and sickness, why not terminate a three-month-old infant or a two-year-old toddler if their suffering is intense? And the answer is obvious because that's a child. But what if it's also a child inside the womb? Wouldn't that argument hold true? Let's go back to Down syndrome. So I read just this morning, somebody sent it to me, an article in the Atlantic Magazine uh, 2020. You need to know about the Atlantic Magazine. The Atlantic Magazine is not a bastion of uh, conservative thought. <laughs> it's not a, a super liberal, but uh, they normally they don't endorse presidents. Uh, they did Abraham Lincoln. That's how old it is. And they did the last two opposing Donald Trump. So that'll give you a little kind of where, where they land in the whole scheme of politics. So I was reading an article from 2020 um, entitled The Last Children of Down Syndrome. And then the subtitle was Prenatal Testing is Changing Who Gets Born and Who Doesn't. And then this is just the beginning. And it's a study of uh, Denmark, which has nearly eliminated Down Syndrome. How have they done it? 95% of Down syndrome children are aborted in Denmark. That almost sounds like genocide. I'm sorry. In 1920, um, there, there was a, uh, a group of thought uh, that followed what was called eugenics. And uh, eugenics is a set of beliefs and practices that aim to improve the genetic quality of human population historically by excluding people uh, and groups judged to be inferior and promoting those judged to be superior. It had deep roots in America. In fact, there are some terrible things that happened among the African-American people, among uh, uh, people that maybe uh, uh, developmentally or, or mentally in other ways uh, uh, were not according to the norm. I'm not saying that African-American people were that way. Trust me, that I shouldn't have put those two together. You understand what I'm saying. It was a lot of different people and, and, and some terrible things were done uh, at the, uh, 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 with someone saying, this is what perfection looks like and this is what everybody should look like. Now, it was, uh, and it was fairly mainstream. You can study it. Uh, what what uh, crippled eugenics is uh, a man named Adolf Hitler who took it to the nth degree and in the Nazi camps uh, trying to create a superior race eliminated anyone who uh, wasn't uh, what they thought was uh, uh, up to standards. 
And so not much was talked about eugenics uh, in the 1950s uh, in Denmark. It became a conversation about cost versus benefit analysis. If you keep the child, this is what it's going to cost. This is the benefit to it. And then you can make a, a decision. Uh, by 1994, that was rejected. And they changed it to call it a woman's right to choose. Okay. And um, a, as a result, uh, in, in Denmark, uh, like I said, 95% of Down syndrome uh, uh, cases are eliminated. Here's my question. If God loves everybody and he chooses when life begins, then we don't get to decide when somebody gains or loses value. We just don't. That's God's, that's God's arena. And uh, um, this is not this message. This is, but it, in, in the whole uh, uh, genetics studies and, and that type of thing, we're headed in a direction that is dicey to say the least. Some call it neo-eugenics, and you need to watch for that, and you need to read about that. So after I preached a message like that, the last one I did was 12 years ago, and I wish I could have found it. We lost it somehow. It would have saved me a lot of study time, but whatever. I'd have just preached it again. But I got a letter from a lady, and here's what she said in our congregation. She said, Pastor Greg, I know you must receive Thousands of emails a week. Not quite, but I do receive several. I just wanted to send you a quick note to thank you for your message on Sunday for touching on the subject. I learned a few years ago that I was a scheduled abortion, and it forever changed my heart and mind on the issue. But the grace of God, in about an hour before her appointment, my mother called my father, her then boyfriend, and said that she couldn't go through with it and that she would raise me on her own if she had to. Luckily, both parents accepted the challenge and chose life. Needless to say, 33 years later for me and 34 years later for their marriage, I can sit here and thank the Lord and my parents for choosing life. So often I see people share their stance on the topic with hatred, anger, and fear, but your words were truthful, loving, and shared hope and redemption this weekend. I was so grateful to hear them. Every day I get to live my life knowing that I was an hour away from never knowing this world. If that isn't a reason to celebrate life and hope, I'm not sure what is. Thank you for addressing it uh, with truth, hope, and love. In the end, that's what will save those and save our lives, not anger and judgment. And so let me review. God loves everybody, regardless of where you are on this issue or any other issue. God alone has the right to determine when life begins Here's the third thing, and it kind of relates to that, that letter, and that's this. Our tone on this issue matters. Our tone on all issues matter today. Um, a couple of years ago, three years ago, I wanted to go to a guitar show in Los Angeles. They do it every year or two, and, and there, uh, there a lot of people, 16,000 people go, and I love guitars. I'm not very good at playing guitars, but I love guitars. In fact, I have a friend who Guitar Magazine at one point called the greatest guitar player in the world. We were in a band together when I was a kid. I brought him to Seacoast a few years ago. We played together. And I asked this question of him. These people need to know how good was I back in the day? And he said, he said, you know, in Nashville, there are two types of musicians, those who have talent and those who have instruments. And he said, you have instruments. And I still do. That's all I have. I collect guitars. 
But I wanted to go to this guitar show, and uh, it just so happened that I was preaching at a small art church in Anaheim at the same time as they were doing the show. Or was it that I called the ARC office and asked them to find me a place I could be an encouragement on that day? I don't remember. Here's what I do remember. There was this one intersection where all 16,000 people had to pass by. And uh, it was just jammed with people. And there was a guy there that was up on a little box and he had one of these. You seen these? It's a bullhorn. And he was talking to us, trying to convince us. Here's what he was saying. You're sinners. Repent. You're all going to hell. It was the South. He just said, all y'all are going to hell. You're all going to hell. You're a bunch of baby killers. You need to repent. And here's what I thought. I thought two things. That's one brave dude that believes in what he believes in. Somebody's going to clean his clock someday. First thing. Second thing is, I wonder how much good he's really doing. And I wonder how many hearts are changing as a result and how many are hardened in the process. And you know what? That our tone matters. In fact, the Bible says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but don't have what? Love. I am only a resounding gong, a clanging cymbal, or a bullhorn. <laughs> That's what it would say if it was today. Okay? We we, the, the tone matters. Tone matters in every conversation that we're having these days. Seems like people are disagreeing about everything and they're getting out their bullhorns and they're yelling at one another and nobody is being converted. Okay? So is there an answer? Yes, I believe there is. Rather than a bullhorn, how about a cup of coffee? How about when you find somebody that disagrees with you on an issue, regardless of what it is, how about we sit down and we have coffee? The good news is on this issue, almost no one likes abortion. We just maybe disagree on how it should be handled. In our polarized society, it's all or nothing these days. If you don't agree with me politically, or if you don't agree with me on this issue or that issue, then you're my enemy. How did we get there? What about this? How about if I said, okay, you don't agree with me on 50% of what I'm saying, or you only agree on about 10% of, of what I'm saying on whatever issue. Why don't we sit down and have a cup of coffee on that 10%? Let's start there. Or how about we start with the 20% that we agree on, or the 50% that we agree on? See, a person who agrees with me 50% of the time, or even 20% of the time, is not my 100% enemy. I had a group of guys pastors at the retreat this week and uh, uh, a small group, about three or four of us, were having a, a theological discussion on a controversial theological point. And one of the guys said, you know what? I don't know if I can get there. But he said, let's talk about what we agree on on that subject. And I thought, that's it. We need to dive into what we agree on and let's see if we can build from there. And for some of us here today, there are family members or there are friends that has been such a hurtful season. And maybe what you need to do is get a cup of coffee and say, let's sit down and let's talk about what we agree on.
And let's see if we can build from there. So I'm going to conclude. This is a little longer than the other services. That's what happens when you come to the 1130 service. I run out of energy and there's not another service behind me, but I really am done. Our theme for this series is that God loves everybody. Everybody needs Jesus. And it's the Holy Spirit that changes hearts. I don't have to change your heart. You don't have to change mine. It's the Holy Spirit. And we all need Jesus. I want to talk to an important group of people as I close. And that's those who've experienced an abortion. Maybe you're a female and that was a choice that you made at some time. Or you were a male and you just looked back and you thought, I, I wished that I would have been there. I wish that I could have. I wish that I would have been more helpful than I was. Here's what I want you to know is God loves you. And here's the second thing I want you to know is that God doesn't want you to live one moment in shame and guilt for a past decision that you've made. I got another note just this week from a friend of mine named Cindy. And she said, I just wanted you to know I'm praying for you this week as you speak about this subject. My life has definitely been scarred because of my abortion decisions. Even as a Christian, I have suffered mentally and emotionally, but I have found forgiveness and healing. Praise Jesus. It was most difficult to forgive myself. There is hope for those who suffer from their decisions as they turn to Jesus. And if I can get help in the healing process, or if I can help in the healing process, from anybody's abortion, shame, and guilt. I'm willing. You can use my name and experience if it'll ever help. God give you wisdom in his words to share with you this week. That's God's heart to you. God loves you. He doesn't want you to live in shame. God loves you more than you can know. Let's bow for closing prayer. Father, we love you. We thank you and we praise you for your word and the strong foundation of truth that we can rely on. God, now I ask that your Holy Spirit would just come and fill this place. You're the teacher. You're the healer. You're the convictor. You're the one who can make things right. And so we invite you into this place. We ask that you would come in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to have a time of response and uh, our time of response. Uh, there could be a lot of, a lot of ways that you could respond to a message like this. Please don't throw eggs. Uh, one would be prayer. Maybe you need somebody to pray, pray with you. Perhaps it's because of some shame and guilt that you hold from a choice that you made, or maybe it's totally, totally different. People are healed here every week as people, uh, as, as we look to God for healing, maybe there's a body or emotion or something that you uh, really need to take to the Lord. We have people who would love to lend you their faith. Okay. You say, well, what will everybody think? Who cares? When God is in the house, anything can happen. And that that's what we believe. And that's what we know. And so there'll be prayer teams around. Also, uh, some of us need to go to the cross and just ask God to help us change our tone. You know, maybe in a conversation with friends or coworkers or fellow church members or whatever, 
your tone just isn't quite what it should be. Mine gets out of tune every once in a while. I, I'm probably the only one in the building that that happens to. But maybe you need to go to the Lord and just repent about your tone in some conversations. Or maybe there's another area of sin that, that you need to repent of. You can just go to the cross and do that. We've got candles where you can pray for a friend or a family member. Uh, we, we're going to receive communion together, reemphasizing and reminding ourselves that we all need Jesus. We all need Jesus. And uh, we're going to go to the offering boxes or online and give generously. And we're going to stand and sing and celebrate an awesome God who loves us more than we can know. So what's God saying to you? And how are you going to respond to him? Let's respond together.